Latter-day Saint youth are taught in seminary about the pride cycle of the Book of Mormon, a cycle wherein the Nephites go from freedom to apostasy to bondage, then humility and repentance, and finally deliverance. However, like so many other things, this cycle didn't actually begin anywhere but the Old Testament. In this case, the Book of Judges. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. This week's episode, Old Testament, lesson number 19, The Reign of the Judges. And this is what this is the story of what happened after the death of Joshua. Uh, instead of being ruled by a prophet, Israel entered a period where each tribe sort of had its own self-governance. And when necessary, they banded together under the reign of a judge. And this happened several times over a couple of hundred years. And they were often, as as we spoke about last time, uh, they were often oppressed by the people that they had failed to cast out of their land. And therefore, uh, they had bondage come upon them. Sometimes it was in the form of spiritual bondage. Sometimes it was actual slavery. And several tribes would band together. And this was a this was a cycle that repeated itself several times in the book of Judges. It's very interesting. But uh, just as we understand the cycle in Judges a little better by learning about it in the Book of Mormon, there are a few things we can learn from the Book of Mormon that help us understand the, the book of Judges better. One scripture we can start with uh, in the Book of Mormon to help us understand Judges. Mosiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 3. Now it came to pass that, and I've, and I've mentioned this on a few occasions where uh, I've said we're, we're always only one generation away from apostasy. So here's an example of this. It came to pass there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin being little children at the time he spake unto his people. And they did not believe the tradition of their fathers. They did not believe... What had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead, neither did they believe the concerning neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ, and now, because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. This is an interesting question. Whose fault is that? Was it the fault of the children because they uh, it says here because of their unbelief they could not understand? Uh, was it was it their fault because their hearts were hardened, or did their uh, did their fathers not teach them properly? Uh, hard to say, impossible to say for us, but it does say in the Bible that I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting. This is in Exodus chapter twenty, visiting the sins of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hateth me. What that means is exactly what happened here in the 26th chapter of Mosiah. The When parents apostatize, children are also pay the price for that apostasy. 
and therefore um, it's it's a huge choice to fall away from truth. Any sin that we have, but especially that of personal apostasy, can become a general apostasy in a short time. The flip side of that is, as children, we can heal the generational failings of our ancestors by making correct choices, by taking, by taking action required to move our lineage back onto the, the course the Lord would have us take. So on the one hand, children can affect, or fathers can affect their children, ancestors can affect their descendants. On the other hand, I believe, personally, this is my own view, that when we repent and we, there, there's a reason why some things are more difficult for us than they are for other people, and that might be because uh, those difficulties are passed on. And when we repent and we heal those difficulties, we make it easier for our ancestor to be forgiven. And I believe that's one of the reasons why um, oftentimes, and, and again, this isn't doctrine, but oftentimes it seems like angels are, it might be doctrine, I, I don't know whether it is or not, um, are sent to the members of their own family because the Lord works through families to save both the, as, it, as uh, Joseph Smith said, they without us can't be saved, we without them can't be saved. We, we work together for each other's salvation. And so I, I kind of believe that when we, when we fix the things in ourselves that have been passed on to us, it helps our, our ancestors to repent because our sins are no longer hanging over their heads. Uh, and that's more, it's more than just the proxy work that we might do in the temple. It's also the fact that um, they're, they're, we are all limited in the spirit world. We're limited in how we can repent. And part of that limitation is we've affected the, the agency of people on earth. And we're no longer able to interact with them. And therefore, we have to wait for them to repent before we can be forgiven. A personal view, not necessarily scriptural, but I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, and so this this cycle occurs not only in generations, but it occurs within the lives of individuals. In the in the book of Judges, there are six main examples of this cycle, and we won't go through in detail all six of them, but uh, we'll go through a couple. And the first two are named Othniel and Ehud. Not a lot of people discuss them or have even heard those names, but here's a name you're probably familiar with, Deborah. And a lot of girls uh, have been named after Deborah. It's a common name in Jewish as well as in, in Devorah is, is how it's pronounced in Israel, but um, common enough American name, Deborah, Debbie, because Deborah was a very valiant woman and um, a name that is getting more popular in recent years, Barak. So Barak was uh, the military leader, but Deborah was actually the judge of Israel. And she called on Barak to 
to withstand Israel's enemies. And he said, I will only go up against them if, if thou wilt come with me. And she said, I will. But, um, and, the, and Sisera was the name of the, the enemies of Israel at that time. And she said, but everyone will know that Sisera was, was delivered into the hand of a woman. And this is a, a theme that's repeated over and over again. You may, have, you may be familiar with uh, the story of Gideon. And Gideon had access to a huge army of Israelites, but God kept telling him, reduce your number, reduce your number. And you may remember the story where uh, he, he chose only those people who put their hands in the water and raised their hands to their lips rather than bending all the way over. He had, he had several ways of limiting who could come until finally, against the Midianites, there were only 300 of them. And what they did was they, they put lights in, a, in pitchers, and then they snuck in at night and broke their pitchers open, and then shouted the sword in the hand of the Lord, and, and in, uh, the sword of God and of Gideon, and the Midianites woke up and killed each other. And again and again, they're... Uh, Israel is miraculously delivered. Much like what happened with Jericho, there is there is a uh, an effort on behalf of the on on the part of the Lord to not allow the Israelites to uh, fully fight their own battles or to or to have an excuse to boast in their own strength, to put it better. Um, and Gideon is a perfect example. God kept commanding Gideon to reduce the size of his force so that afterwards nobody could boast we did this of our own strength they they were forced to say god did this for us interestingly gideon at one point uh in judges this is judges chapter 6 verse 13 gideon says where be all the miracles which our fathers told us of so they're in the midst of oppression um from the midianites and we look it's just a, it's just an interesting scripture because we look back at the age of Gideon and you might remember Gideon asked the Lord for a couple of signs and one was okay I'm going to put this piece of wool out on the grass and if it's wet and the grass is dry then I'll know God it's you talking and how many times have we thought you know is this me thinking about this is this my idea or is this God actually talking to me and then he says Okay, that one worked, but maybe that's just the way wool happens to react with dew. So let's try it the opposite way. If the if the wool is dry and the grass is wet next time, now I really will know. And then that happened. And one after the other, the Lord met his requirements. And then, uh, and then Gideon followed the Lord's requirements. So the let's talk about what the what the cycle looks like. And first, I'd like to say, if this is your first time, uh, this is a weekly podcast where we talk about gospel gospel doctrine lessons, and I'm open to your questions and suggestions. Email the show, gt at gospeldoctrine.com. We'll be happy to read your questions from previous lessons or for ones coming up. Uh, and we follow the LDS curriculum. I do one lesson for every lesson in there, although... Not always following the exact same concepts taught in those lessons. It's more of a supplement for you, especially if you're a gospel doctrine teacher. It gives you interesting questions that you can bring into your class. So what does the cycle look like? 
Now, first of all, uh, over and over again, and I can give you several several verses if you want to look them up, but um, in the case of Othniel, Judges 3, that's Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And this, this, these words are repeated almost verbatim six times. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now again, five, five verses later, the children, and this is Ehud, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. So Othniel and Ehud were the judges that eventually would deliver Israel. But it says, uh, and then in chapter 4, under Deborah, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Under Gideon, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's chapter 6. And the final two judges that we'll talk about, that there were there were more judges than this, but the uh, these are the ones that delivered Israel. And then after the cycle went back to freedom, they'd have several years of peace, and then uh, eventually they would do, do evil again in the sight of the Lord. Now, the reason for all this evil was that their fathers, the, and, and the reason I asked this question, whose fault was it in Mosiah 26 that the children couldn't understand the words of King Benjamin? Because in the in the book of Judges, we understand that it is the fault of the parents because they had been given a commandment by Moses and then again by Joshua that they had to free the land. They had to totally claim the land from, and they had to drive out all the inhabitants and utterly destroy them or, or force them to leave and not coexist with them, not mingle with them, not live alongside them because that would prove a stumbling block to them forever. And then they failed to do that. So their children pay the price for them not obeying the commandments. Now in the book of Mosiah, we don't know exactly why, but the fact that there were so many, it says that there were many of the rising generation. The fact that there were so many probably means that a fair number of them had been failed by their parents. They hadn't been... They hadn't had their parents' values passed to them. And the reason I bring that up is we we have a, a prevalent view today, which is, well, every person should have their own choice to decide. And this is totally true, by the way. They should have their own choice to decide what's right or wrong. Now, of course we have our, our choice to decide what we want to do. However... It's not up to us to choose what's right or wrong. It's up to us to find out what's right or wrong. There was an interesting survey done a few years ago, children in junior high school, and they were asked, was what Hitler did right or wrong? And a a surprising, a stunning number of these children refused to condemn Hitler. They said, well, you know, I'm sure he did what he thought was right. I don't agree with it. You know, I think it's wrong, but he's, you know, who who, who am I to say what he, right? They didn't want to judge the choices that somebody else had made. And we've taken the Savior's admonition, judge not lest ye be judged, to the extreme, which is we can't judge behavior. Now, it's it's not up to us to judge people, and we don't get to. We don't get to send people to their respective kingdom, to their reward or punishment, etc. But do we have to judge behavior? Of course. 
Because if all behavior is equal, then what we do doesn't matter. And I don't know if that's what happened to the children or to the parents in Mosiah chapter 26. Were the, were the parents afraid to say, this behavior is better than this behavior? If we can't say that, then our values don't mean anything. And there is no right or wrong. And God doesn't really exist. Because why would it matter for God to exist if no behavior, if some behavior is not better than other behavior? And I'll give you another clue. There is the, there are a lot of people who espouse the view of what this philosophy is called moral relativism. They espouse this view of moral relativism where you where good and evil are relative and what you think is right may not may be right for you but may not be right for me. And again, that can be true in a lot of situations like it's right for you to eat the food that to to avoid gluten and for me it doesn't matter whether I avoid gluten. That's a simple example, obviously way oversimplified. Uh, so in some cases it is right what is right for some one person is not right for others. However, there are certain truths that are true for everyone. And as it's described in the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the glory of God is intelligence. In other words, light and truth. And truth is that which truth describes that which was, which is, and which will come to pass. In other words, truth are facts. And there are spiritual facts just like there are physical facts. God is the custodian of those spiritual facts. If we want to know them, we don't get to decide what they are. We have to ask him. We have to come to him in humility. That's why humility is so important in the scriptures. It's because more morality is not relative. It's absolute. God has already decided it. It has a lot of relative applications. And we need a lot of humility and we need a lot of compassion as we deal with each other because everybody's applying it differently. But that doesn't mean that there's not one truth. And so that's a difficult balance to strike. And sometimes people, uh, perhaps, maybe, in the, in the book of Mosiah, perhaps those people refuse to strike the balance and teach their children. Or perhaps the children used their agency and made bad choices. Hard to say. In any case, they experienced what the, what the Israelites in the book of Judges experienced, which was that one generation really believed in God and had a powerful prophet and were witnesses to miracles and to the Spirit in the occasion of that prophet bearing testimony. And then the next generation, what happened? They, they hadn't had the, that powerful spirit. They hadn't had it conveyed to them. It had not been passed on. That should tell us a little bit about how important it is. And this is what God was trying to do when he said, you shall, you shall observe this, this ho- holiday, this festival of Passover every year, because it's so important to remember that's why Joshua said, we're going to put 12 stones alongside the, the River Jordan because we're going to remember every one of the tribes that marched through the, the river on dry ground. We're going to remember that they picked up one of, these, one of the rocks at the bottom of the river and brought it to the side. So remembering is crucial 
and then teaching. If we truly believe, we have to be able to pass it along. We owe it to our children. And if we've been past something imperfect ourselves, we owe it to our ancestors to correct it. So the cycle starts with, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then what happens? The consequences of sin are that... um, and it says uh, the Lord is often the agent in the book of, of Joshua, and in fact, all over the Old Testament. Uh, the Lord sold the Israelites into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia, or the Lord, and that's in uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 8. The Lord strengthened the Moabites. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. So the Lord is the agent actually actively working against Israel. And that's another, by the way, that's another indication. That's another huge difference. That's another innovation of the Torah and the, the book and the books of the prophets is that the, the, Isra- the Israelites saw themselves as a chosen people, and yet so often their own God turns against them. A totally new literary pattern that hadn't been seen up until this point that it would normally a, uh, a sacred work like this would extol the virtues of the people in question and the, their God, they and their God would always be in harmony and their God would be powerful and the people would be powerful. And instead, whenever they do what's wrong, then the people are spurned by God and delivered into the hands of their enemies. So in, in these verses, the other nations are the powerful ones. The other nations are the ones who are deserving of praise. And either somebody among the Israelites had the amazingly silly idea that humility, and, and I mean silly uh, facetiously, but it was new, It would have been totally silly at the time. The silly idea that humility was a desirable trait and that he should call attention to the faults of his own people. Or, this is an inspired book and these are true principles and God is actually upset with the Israelites. Uh, So, just as when we study the Book of Mormon, we talk about ways in which we we can guess that God was behind it the same thing is true for the Bible. There are plenty of people who doubt, who doubt the Bible the way they doubt the Book of Mormon. So once the Israel has been sold into the hand of the Midianites, into the hand of Mesopotamia, the Moabites, into Canaan, then they cry unto the Lord. And again, this happens over and over again. Those exact words, Israel cried unto the Lord, is repeated at least five times. Now, I mentioned six judges. That's because the last time um, Samson is the judge or the leader of, uh, or the at least the military leader or the strongest man in the nation of Israel. And in that particular case, we don't have a record of Israel crying unto God. So we'll talk about Samson. He's a little bit of a special case. Uh, later. But then what happens? The Lord raises up a deliverer. And read, 
Again, these words are repeated almost verbatim. The Lord in uh, Judges 3, verses 9 and 10, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel the son of Kenaz. In chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud the son of Gera. In chapter 4, Deborah a prophetess. In chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, the Lord said, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man, talking to Gideon. So the Lord raises up a delivery, brings a person in whom he can trust and who he knows will follow his will and be able to, uh, the Lord will be able to bless because the Lord isn't able to bless everyone. Just because everyone is crying out, of course they're crying out, they're suffering. But the Lord can only bless someone who's following, as, it's, as it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, who is obeying the law upon which that blessing is predicated. So that's why a deliverer is necessary. And incidentally, that's why Jesus is our Savior, is because the blessing of forgiveness from sins is predicated upon someone being able to set right the penalty for sin, which is spiritual death. None of us could do that. Only one person obeyed the law upon which that blessing is predicated, and he obeyed it so well that he obeyed it well enough for everyone. So that's what a deliverer means. And then eventually, the deliverance happens. Um, You can read, there are several examples, in three three right in a row in chapters 3 and 4. But the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into Othniel's hand. That's chapter 3, verse 10. Ehud said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. That's chapter 3, verse 28. Happens over and over again. So, uh, Israel is victorious over her enemies, and then there's peace. After Then they have 40 years of peace, 40 years of peace, 80 years of peace, 40 years of peace, again and again. Let's talk about the end of this cycle. Again, the Book of Mormon gives us some insight into what happened. If we look now in chapter 29 of Mosiah, and uh, this is it's been kind of fun lately to teach because I'm pulling a lot of interesting insights uh, for the lessons in the Old Testament from my personal reading in the Book of Mormon. And uh, if you have some insights into where you're reading in the Book of Mormon, I'd love to hear them. Um, but at the end of his life, Mosiah said, my son doesn't want to be king. So they, he did something similar to what they did in the reign of the judges, which was, let's be, let's be ruled over by judges. My son doesn't want to be king. If we choose anyone else, then my son might come back later and there'll be war over the kingship. So let's be, uh, something like a democracy or a republic, or, uh, we don't know exactly, but... Let's let's have government by the people. And that this is going to be good for us because the the majority of the people won't usually choose something wrong. So if if a small part of the people want something wrong, then you'll all vote on it and you'll be able to overrule the wicked minority. 
But then he says uh, something interesting in Mosiah 29, 27. If the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time he will visit you with great destruction, even he, as he has hitherto visited this land. So we're talking now about Samson. And you know the story of Samson. But um, in case you've forgotten some of the details, Samson was a Nazarite. And a Nazarite is a special Israelite who makes a more stringent covenant. Uh, among other things, they don't touch wine, they don't cut their hair, their lives are dedicated unto God from an early age, they don't go near dead bodies, and they're given great spiritual power, according to how faithful they are in the Nazarite covenant. Uh, so, Samson was a Nazarite, and he, and he was the one who was the judge when Israel was delivered without ever repenting. In this particular iteration of the cycle, they skip, that, they skip over that part. And interestingly enough, um, they, they're never finally, there's no peace after the deliverance. So this is where the cycle is broken. And uh, Samson, again, he has, because he's a Nazarite, the Lord can bless him with certain blessings. Physical strength was his blessing. But he's unable to bless him with the power to actually spiritually redeem or deliver the nation of Israel. And so instead of the normal cycle taking its, taking its course where they return to freedom, instead they have continual warfare. And though Samson has a temporary victory for a time, in the end, he's conquered himself. Now, Samson is interesting for another reason, because he's a personal example of this pride cycle. Samson goes through in his own life the, the freedom and the strength and the power that comes with obeying God, and then he falls into apostasy because of lust. Uh, if you remember, they send the Philistines were the enemy at that time, and they send a woman named Delilah to tempt Samson, and it works. But he's, even though Samson seems like an idiot, I, I actually think he's pretty smart. Number one, he, he gives the, uh, you may remember the story of his riddle. He gives the Philistines a riddle that if they can answer, then uh, he'll, or if they can't answer, then he, they have to obey his will. And I don't know why they would agree to this, because he gives them an impossible riddle. He saw a honeycomb inside of a lion carcass on his way there, and he said, out of the, out of the eater went forth meat. And I don't know who in, on earth would ever say, oh, you must, have seen a, you must have seen a beehive inside of a lion carcass. But that's his riddle. It's not, uh, you know... Bilbo meeting with uh, Gollum, it isn't. If, you re if you've ever read The Hobbit, they have a little riddle session, and it's, it's pretty fun to read. I remember loving it when I was a child, but it's a very... Samson's riddle is not on that level at all, and it was impossible to guess, and they fell for it anyway. So he, I don't think he was that stupid, but um, and he also fools Delilah. He tells her three times, she says, Where did, what's the secret of your strength? 
uh, he knows she's lying to him. He tells her three times the wrong thing, and then he finds out later that somehow the Philistines, her people, found out about it. Now, uh, and then they tried to uh, counteract the cause that he made up. And, of course, it doesn't work. Finally, on the fourth time, uh, she she's really hurt. She uses her feminine wiles, and he tells her that it's his hair. Now, it's not his hair. What it is, is his Nazarite covenant. But when he decides to betray his covenant, he knows that she'll cut his hair when, he's, when he tells her what it is, and therefore he's broken his covenant. He's complicit in the cutting of his hair. And when the covenant is broken, then the blessings of God withdraw, and Samson is taken prisoner. They put out his eyes. In other words, there's an apostasy, there's a bondage. And while he's in prison, he finds humility and repentance. And uh, Samson, in the case of Samson, he is tied between two pillars. And when he flexes, his strength returns and he flexes his arms and pushes the pillars aside. And the house crumbles and kills the leaders of the Philistines. And that's a a poor sort of deliverance. Um, A Pyrrhic victory is what it's called. And uh, it's a it's a tragedy, another almost a, a Greek or a Shakespearean tragedy in the in the Old Testament, a wonderful story and a very powerful object lesson. And it's an example of the very cycle that we've been seeing in the people of Israel. We see it in one of the leaders of Israel. Samson is also notable for one other reason. And that's as a contrast to another Nazarite, whom we're going to discuss next week. But um, we'll talk about the Nazarite aspect of this person right now, and that is Samuel. So Samson has physical strength, and he's and he's blessed as a result of his Nazarite vows. There, he has a miraculous birth. There are a lot of similarities between Samson and Christ. And Samuel, also, miraculous birth. His mother was barren. Her name is Hannah. She visits the temple. She prays to God. She says, if you give me a child, I will, I will dedicate him to thee. And that's why he's a Nazarite. So she's blessed with children. Her first child, she sends to the temple to serve the rest of his life. And very early on, it, it's discovered that Samuel is a prophet, and he's also a Nazarite from birth. So it doesn't talk much about him having physical strength because of his hair. But Samuel is what Samson should have been. Instead of physical strength, he had spiritual strength. And he is a powerful contrast to Samson, who was taken captive by his own lust. Let's talk now about some exceptions to this cycle. Uh, the, you know, we see the cycle again and again in the Book of Mormon as well. So we could we could spend a long time talking about more examples of where this pride cycle shows up.
But instead, I think it's kind of interesting to, to look at where it didn't happen. In other words, there's freedom, then there's apostasy, but then there's no bondage afterwards. Because the people repented. And the first uh, example that came into my mind was the prophet Jonah. He was sent to the Assyrians. He was sent to Nineveh to preach. And when he got there, uh, they actually repented. And when Nineveh repented, then God forgave them and they weren't destroyed. So he warned them of destruction. They repented and that destruction never came. And the same thing happened with the people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. The same thing happened in Alma chapter 35 with the um, some of the Zoramites. Alma preached to them and he said, Blessed are ye because you've, compelled to, you've been compelled to be humble. And they followed him out of that land and they escaped the destruction that came. Um, and this, this happens again, the Nephites under Moroni, several times they repent and they're spared. Um, in the Old Testament, there's, a, there's an apostasy when, when Moses goes up on, on top of the mountain, and he comes down and many people repent. Um, in the days of David and Goliath, uh, there's, a, there's a repentance, there's, a, there's an apostasy, but then there's a repentance when David shows up. And there's a wonderful story in the book of 1 Kings about a, about a prophet named Josiah who discovers the scriptures in the temple. And I don't want to say too much about it because I'm looking forward to that lesson. It's one of my favorites. But um, the gospel has been almost entirely forgotten to the point where when they discover the scriptures, it's the first time they've ever heard a lot of the things that are in them. And Josiah is the king and he repents in sackcloth and ashes, and he gets all of his people to repent just from finding the scriptures. And the point is, the very point that Alma makes to the Zoramites, which is, because you've been compelled to be humble, blessed are ye, but it's even more blessed if you will humble yourselves, if 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 you're humble without being compelled. The truth is, nobody's ever humble without being compelled to some degree. And the point is, the more you have to be compelled, the more it hurts. So you're more blessed, in other words, you're hurt less. If you're willing to take a minor rebuke from God, be humble and change. But if you're not, God's going to keep hurting you. In other words, he's going to keep allowing the natural consequences of your bad choices to hurt you more and more and more, until finally you'll repent. The reason this is a cycle that repeats itself is because the the natural consequences of sin never change. The consequence of sin is bondage. Whether it's bondage to the Midianites, or the Moabites, or the Lamanites, or simply to the addictions and the bad influences and the accidents, the devourers of the world. Those are the consequences of sin. They're unavoidable. Nor would God choose to help us if he could avoid them. 
because he wants us to feel the consequences of sin. If we feel the consequences of sin, we can also feel the consequences of righteousness. That was the deal that we made when we came to earth. One final judge that we'll talk about, and that's the judge Jephthah. Now, he's an interesting one because he was despised and rejected. He was the, the, the son of a harlot. In other words, the child of a prostitute. He, had no, he didn't know who his father was, and everyone made fun of him. But when the children of Ammon, this is in Judges chapter 11, when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob, and they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain. So they humbled themselves, and they went to find a man who they knew could save them. And once, uh, once they made him their captain, then he did indeed save them. So Jephthah is a, is a type of Christ, and when in, this, in, the like, in the likeness or the similitude of the Savior, when they put him in charge then he did come and save them. So there's a lot to learn about our own lives spiritually in the book of Judges. Uh, first of all, don't be like Samson. But um, that's only because Samson is a personal embodiment of the, of the pattern of the people of Israel that we also should not follow which is we should not have freedom and fall into apostasy. Instead, let's be like one of the examples I gave where people were able to skip the consequences of apostasy by repenting. None of us skip our whole lives, the acts of apostasy. We all of us have a crisis of faith where um, we're less than obedient. Every, we know that every person has fallen short. But we see in the scriptures many times when people are given the opportunity to repent and they gratefully take it. Even if they're compelled to be humble, even if it's the second or third time and, the, and God has allowed the pain to increase and increase until it's almost unbearable. And then until it's actually unbearable. But we don't have to allow it to get to the point where we're in bondage before we can repent and humble ourselves before we can go to someone capable of delivering us and saying, we know that we despised you and we're sorry. Please come be in charge and fight our battles and deliver us because we know that you love us and we made a mistake. I pray that we can humble ourselves before God, that we can see the error of our own ways, that we can discover things in the scriptures that we didn't know before. And just because it's in that book, we're willing to change. Even though we spent our whole lives being unaware, we will repent in sackcloth and ashes without being further compelled, change ourselves, change our hearts, and allow the deliverer to put us back on the path to freedom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.